Archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. So forget any ideas you've got about lost cities, exotic travel, and digging up the world. We do not follow maps to buried treasure, and X never, ever marks the spot. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Nothing shocks me. Scientist. You are listening to Think Theory Radio. 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 Hello and welcome to Think Theory Radio, the show that brings you topics outside the mainstream realm of thought and ideas to make you think. I'm your host, Damien Perdue, and I'm joined, of course, by Polly C. Yo, yo, yo. And the C stands for a cuneiform or a cuneiform. Cuneiform, yeah. however you it's pronounce like it. Old, old language, old written yeah. language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sanskrit. Yeah, I've heard it d- pronounced different ways. That's got to be the first cuneiform. time I knew something that you referenced on this show. <laughs> You're learning, Paul. Yeah. No, nah, that's just one of those weird things I remember from back in the day. And now, now I'm taking all, I'm those, taking like, all the credit for all it. those old social study terms are coming back to me, like Etruscans and papyrus. Oh yeah, papyrus yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Nebuchadnezzar and Hammurabi. <laughs> Actually, you know what's interesting is I do have a story that uh, mentions Hammurabi in it. Okay, is it about Hammurabi's code? No, it's not. Ooh, something new mm, about him. Something, something different. New. Okay. But Hammurabi is interesting, yeah, because his code is the... Uh, the eye for an eye. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's considered the first um, written laws. Yeah, I can see know? that. And it's kind of like, if you look at it, it's very much kind of like the uh, Testaments in a way. Like, it's a very similar, like, thou shalt not steal and... Well, what, what came first, the uh, Hammurabi? Was Hammurabi predates... Uh, uh, the Old Testament. The Old Testament? Yeah. Okay. I was mm-hmm. going to say, because in the Old Testament, there's the story of, like, the two women claim the baby, and right. the emperor's like, oh, just rip the baby in half. And the one mother was like, all right, <laughs> I'll take the top half. And the other one was like, no, it's my baby. See, she's the mother. <laughs> Total paraphrasing. There was a Seinfeld story. like that. Yeah. <laughs> was there? Yeah. Because, you know, what's funny is that I wanted, like, it's kind of a parable. And it was uh, Elaine... Promised Kramer the bike, like this girl's bike that she had bought, like a vintage girl's bike. I don't remember that episode. Yeah, because okay. like he like fixed her back or whatever, you know. Yeah. And she was kind of making a, you know, just like if somebody fix my back, I'll give her a bike. And he's mm-hmm. and then he did. Well, I want the bike. And then they went to uh, to Newman. Yeah, was like the mediator. So who gets the bike? And okay. uh, and then it was like that. Well, I'm gonna split the bike in half. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And you both get a half. And Elaine was like, fine, do it. And then and then Kramer was like, no, 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 you give her the bike, give her the bike. And he was like, see, he's the real owner. <laughs> they must have stole that. It from has the, to be. The Old Testament That's story, interesting. Yeah. I never thought about yeah. that in relation. See, it all correlates. I can bring Seinfeld up for any, any, anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got to I'm going to. 
<laughs> See, add that, to totally. the, add that to the Think Theory drinking game of if Damien uh, references Seinfeld or Paul references The Simpsons. Because I saw a, take a shot, and, I'm, and I'm, obviously we're doing like archaeology this show, but I so want to mention this thing, and I, and I will bring it up on the next Weird Science. But really quickly, there is an AI generated eternal I, I heard Seinfeld. This. Yeah, I, I'd been wanting to see this, and I hear yeah. Jerry hates it. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, because he's not making money on it. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, we'll talk more about that on, an, on another episode. <laughs> so today we're talking about archaeology. <laughs> if you couldn't tell by the Seinfeld reference. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's been a while since we did like awesome archaeology and I got a bunch of different discoveries that have happened recently. And there is one uh, that mentions Hammurabi in it. Um, but first, the first one, I'm just going to blow the roof off with this first one. Kick it's the doors just, down. Yeah, the, the rest is just downhill from here. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to save it because, you know, sometimes we don't get to all of them, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, this one's got to be got to be mentioned. Um, yeah, and no this, teasing and pleasing. This is right out of the right gate. Right out of the yeah. gate. Just get you hooked. Yep. And you're listening for the rest of the show. <laughs> and that story is? A total amateur may have just rewritten human history with a bombshell discovery. Oh, no. As the headline reads. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, and this is... Uh, this discovery could push the timeline of written language back by tens of thousands of years. And... Uh, but the, the interesting thing, it comes from a dude named Ben Bacon, who's a, a furniture conservator. You know, my wife got a lot of flour recently, so she's been Bacon, too. Hey! hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no relation to Francis Bacon, I don't think. No, maybe. no. Maybe. Maybe. But he's a furniture conservator. Okay. I don't know what that means. So it sounds like it was from London. That collects. So it's a very like. Probably collects furniture. Mm, collects certain furniture maybe. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Conser- conserves it. Maybe like. Well, a conservator, like a conservatory. So like. Yeah. yeah. Like houses. Preserves yeah, or houses. Yeah. Maybe buys old furniture and preserves yeah. it or something. So uh, essentially he's like Walter E. Smith or Penny Mustard <laughs> or Steinhoffels or whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I have no idea. It just sounds like a very English word for, yes. like, furniture salesman. Yeah, He's conser- a furniture conservator. <laughs> it's just a salesman. So he runs a vintage furniture shop. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. He just describes himself as effectively a person off of the street. Um, but basically, what ha- there is this, uh, if you've heard of these ancient... European caves that have some of the oldest paintings of animals and figures... Uh, they're basically from like fifteen thousand in between, in between fifteen thousand and forty thousand years ago, in the Paleolithic age, when humans were just hunter gatherers. Ben Bacon uh, restores. Ah, her. there you go. So that make that's kind yeah, of what we're saying. Yeah. Um, so these came these cave paintings often include non figurative markings like dots and lines, and no one has really known what these dots and lines mean. And then here comes Ben Bacon, furniture restorer. This conservator sounds better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he believes, so he noticed these markings while he was admiring images of the European cave art. And he developed a hunch they could be decipherable. 
And he believes that these dots and lines are actually the first known writing in the history of Homo sapiens. Wow. Now, this hasn't totally been proven. This is, but it, there was a study published uh, in the Cambridge Archaeological Journal. And according to Bacon, he says, I think that the cave paintings fascinated us all because of their beauty and visceral immediacy. I was idly looking at Paleolithic paintings one night on the web and noticed, purely by chance, that a large number of animals had what I took to be numbers associated with them. And he launched a meticulous effort to decode them and mostly focusing on these lines, dots, and a Y-shaped symbol. Um, now, some previous researchers have suggested the symbols could be a form of uh, numerical notation Perhaps they're uh, counting the number of animals sighted or killed. And, but Bacon made the leap to suggest that they form a calendar system designed to track the life cycles of animals depicted in the paintings. And uh, he got help with archaeologists from Durham University and University College of London to develop the idea and co-author the new study that we are looking for number-based information about specific prey animals is therefore our point of departure, the researchers explained in the study. It seems to us unnecessary to need to convey information about the numbers of individual animals, the times of them incited, or the number of successful kills. It seems far more likely that information pertinent to predicting their migratory movements and periods of aggregation, i.e. mating and birthing, when they are predictably located in some number and relatively vulnerable would be greatest importance for survival, they added. Researchers noted that the paintings are never accompanied by more than 13 of these lines and dots, which could mean that they denote lunar months. The lunar calendar they envision would not track time across years, but it would be informally rebooted each year during a time late in the winter, early spring. The Y symbol, commonly drawn directly or near animal depictions, could represent birthing, based on seems to show two parted legs. <laughs> Um, and you know the Y symbol is something that's very Chicago too, which I'm saying for another show. I'm not going to tell you right now. Oh, I think I can say it. figure it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they believe that this is a lunar calendar and could possibly be the oldest written or evidence of written language. I saw a meme where some guy was suggesting, like, we could have 13 months, 28 days a month, and it would follow the cycles of the moon. And someone's like, dude, that's the lunar calendar. Like, there's been several, <laughs> several uh, different societies that have come up with that already. <laughs> like, you're not what? on anything new. <laughs> I have this concept of this round, circular number that's not really a number, but it is a number. <laughs> I don't think anyone's used it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying to find the um, the Hammurabi one real quick. Yeah, since we were talking about him. Mm -hmm. Where was that one at? Hammurabi and his code. But this isn't, you said it's not about the code. No. no. So this is, and I have found it. It's that uh, two 3,800-year-old cuneiform. See, there's that yeah, word. There's that word, See? yeah. Uh, tablets. On, oh, tablets. Okay. Tablets. It's not papyrus. It's tablets. Okay. <laughs> not the tablets of, of nowadays. Because cuneiform was carved into tablets. Yeah. I think that was it. Cuneiform is specifically 
carved language, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, you should have seen the social media tablets they had back then. <laughs> the, the, the first iPad. Yeah. It is kind of interesting, though, that like when you think about modern times and people with like the, their tablets, like yeah. you got your tablet, yeah, and you think like this was the original writing people I, had these stone tablets i know we've probably referenced it here before or maybe off the air but i still love history of the world part one where mm-hmm. it's like mel brooks is moses coming down from the mountains i bring you these 15 he drops one that yeah. breaks 10 <laughs> commandments <laughs> and I, and i had found out later that one of the 15 commandments the the extra five that yeah. were broken was thou shalt not drop this <laughs> like written in hebrew. is it in there on i there? guess written in hebrew i guess nice. is something like deciphered it yeah ah, i could be off on the easter egg like, yeah, yeah yep which is so Mel Brooks. For sure, yeah. for sure. And I, I guess still part, like watching that one. Part and then, two uh, is coming out. History of the World Part 2 oh, is coming that's, out. Yeah. Is that for real? Yeah. Okay. It is for real. Hmm. And it's like sanctioned by Mel Brooks. Oh, wow. I, it, based on the previews, it doesn't look as great as Part 1. Yeah. But at the same time, it's you know we're finally getting Part 2. I feel like it's a hard movie to make nowadays, too. I, I think of, it's a series is what they're doing. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. You know, if we're not going to get Spaceballs to the search for more money, at least we're getting History of the World Part 2. So. <laughs> uh, that, I felt like rewatching that in The Life of Brian, which is another. Monty uh, Python? Yeah, yeah. Another kind of Classic, historical. Yeah. Of the 70s, uh, cranked out some great historical comedies. Yeah. yeah. That's, what they, well, that's what we need more now. <laughs> don't do those anymore. Um, yeah, so this. Uh, they found two cuneiform tablets dated to 1800 BC or 3800 years ago. This was the era of Hammurabi, Babylonian king known for the Code of Hammurabi that we talked about earlier. They were found and actually found in Iraq during the Gulf War, and they were transferred or stolen uh, <laughs> from there to a safe place overseas. And then they got uh, swallowed up, kind of lost, you know, in, in the mire of archaeological stolen artifacts. <laughs> and uh, I guess recently they have emerged and people have uh, started to uh, decipher them. And it seems that it, it's a proto-Hebrew language. It says the first words and phrases in the Amorite Canaanite language, um, and the and the second contains their translation into Akkadian, which is a known language that can be read and translated. Because I guess the early ones it's hard to uh, decipher. In this text, which is very very ancient, words appear that anyone who knows Hebrew will immediately recognize. You don't have to be a linguist to understand the connection to Hebrew. Um, says. Uh, the researcher named uh, Mr. Cohen. And Cohen adds that the text proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that already in the second millennium BC, there was a spoken language that was very close to Hebrew, which has been heretofore, it's not a word you get to use a lot, <laughs> only known from the first millennium BC. Cohen transcribed the Amorite Canaanite text from cuneiform into Hebrew letters and presented a modern Hebrew translation. The result speaks for itself. The line T Nam Mi Ela A E D Ni translates to You owe me a lot of money. No. <laughs> I was going to say, say that ten times fast. Goodness. I guess that translates to Give water on our hands. And then. Wash uh, your hands. 
I'm not going to go through all the original phrases, but basically these uh, phrases translate into uh, give water on our hands, pour us wine, fetch the table, bring us bread, and I will make a sacrifice to my God. <laughs> Look, the first four very sounds like they were in some ancient restaurant. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Fetch the table, pour us wine, bring us bread, and now I will sacrifice to my God. <laughs> Maybe that's what they did at restaurants, Peg. They didn't tip. They sacrificed to the they sacrificed the waiter to the guy. <laughs> no tip for you. <laughs> like Caddyshack, where uh, was it the Bill Murray's the caddy for the Dalai Lama, and it's like he didn't tip me, but he told me that on my deathbed I'll receive total consciousness. Right. So I got that going. For right. Me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, back then they might have been, you know, they were so brainwashed into believing that it would have. They probably would, were willing to do it. What? Oh man, the guy said he, he's going to sacrifice me. I'm so honored. <laughs> um, and yeah, so the basically the they believed that this was some early uh, Hebrew, and the uh, big question is who were the Amorites whose language had just been discovered? And that's the biggest riddle, says Cohen. It was a people that arose all of a sudden, or to be more precise, reached political maturity around 1800 B.C. In the Bible, the Amorites are mentioned as one of the nations that dwelled in Canaan at the time that it was conquered by the Israelite tribe. The Israelites were commanded to cut off their descendants. And in the book of Amos, they're described as being as tall as cedars and as strong as oaks. Hmm. So those were some uh, big, sturdy... Sturdy people, the Amorites were. <laughs> and they had an ancient language that we now are figuring out. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about some underwater civilization discoveries. Dead Sea Scroll interpretations. Hmm, maybe more cuneiform. Who knows? And Think Theory Radio right after this. Welcome back to Think Theory Radio. Today we're talking about awesome archaeology. The most awesomest of all the archaeologies. And things to dig. dig, dig. <laughs> oh, wait, no, wrong show. Sorry. <laughs> and tablets of... No. <laughs> and tying it back to Seinfeld. <laughs> uh... There was another Seinfeld I saw, a deep fake. It has nothing to do with this, but it was like a deep fake where they put Seinfeld's face over um, in uh, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> although I guess you could kind of tie it because it's the one where he's doing all the biblical lines, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, Samuel Jackson's doing the whole, like, biblical scripture thing when yeah. he's about to kill that guy. And the guy busts in and tries to shoot, but it's guns empty. But they put, like, Seinfeld's face on it. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. No more Seinfeld. Oh, <laughs> at least for now. <laughs> uh, keeping in with the uh, linguistics and writing that we just talked about with the um, cuneiform tablets found, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are uh, some of the most interesting Speaking of biblical stuff, um, these Dead Sea Scrolls have actually revealed 
ancient world's multicultural secrets. Okay. And that was done by handwriting analysis. And I talk about this whenever I do the show. I always talk about I love how, like, modern kind of, like, science and um, ways to go about studying has really, like, opened up so much in archaeology, you know, from the technology we have, but also this kind of, like, I mean, handwriting analysis wasn't anything until, I would say, the 20th century. I would I assume, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't think it was anything before that, but... Um, and this is, I guess the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually discovered more than 70 years ago. And now using sophisticated computing techniques are revealing the invisible hands that wrote the famous texts. And it's uh, a Professor Imladen, it's M-L-A-D-E-N, not sure if the M is silent or not, uh, Popovich at the University of Groningen. Thinks he knows the answer. And his idea was to use paleography in their handwriting. Paleography is the scientific study of hand, ancient handwritten texts. The goal of the paleographer is to identify the location and time of the writing. Texts come in parchment, but also pottery, metal, cloth, and, event, and even casual graffiti. that discovered on the walls of Pompeii. The way you write, the way I write, is very person-specific, Popovich says. There's your muscle movements, and it's very individual. And working, of course, with artificial intelligence. <laughs> and expert Professor Lambert Schumacher, or Schumacher, uh, and other team members part of the Horizon-funded Hand Sand Bible Project, he developed new machine learning computer methods to analyze ancient handwriting digitally. The beauty of the technology we have now is that you can make high spectral images and go down to the pixel level and then make all sorts of calculations, which you can boil down to movement, said Popovich. Through their handwriting, we can, as it were, shake hands with them. And researchers spend many long hours painstakingly tracing Hebrew letters to teach the computer model what was ink and what was not. The results were 3D models of manuscript texts that include more than 5,000 dimensions of calculations. Back in the lab in the Netherlands, Maruf Dali, one of the team members, was puzzled by the results of the computer model. It showed that roughly halfway through the text of the Isaiah Scroll, which was written 2,100 years ago, uh, where's my, oh, lost my place. The handwriting changed enough to indicate another scribe took over. Now. The researchers considered other options. Could he have changed his pen or perhaps he stopped writing, picked up again much later? They write so alike, but the most likely explanation really is that they were two different scribes, said Popovich. One scribe is so good at imitating the other that with the naked human eye, you can't really see that. Well, scholars have previously debated whether or not there are multiple writers. This was the first robust evidence that it could be two scribes. Could the AI be wrong? They think that's less likely. The human paleographer, the expert, is much more of a black box, he said. We don't really know what goes on in our minds. Of course, we have this expertise, but we cannot explain all of our paleographic reasoning. But using the trained computer, he says, paleographers are challenged to better explain the observations they make with the human eye. There is, and through this work, they found evidence that some Dead Sea Scroll scribes were just learning how to write. 
A scribe was discovered who wrote both Hebrew manuscripts and Aramaic, which is the ancient language, which is from the Middle East from 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Uh, another example is how we look at those scribes. Is there also some individuality or space for them to maneuver, says Popovich? We see that there's variation there, so they weren't just sla uh, slavish robots copying what they were told to copy. We can see a little part of what was the cultural evolution that became the Bible, he said. It's the same sort of scribal culture. The, ways, the way they write was also how they worked two to three centuries before. Stemming from the era of the Rome-controlled Egypt between 30 B.C. and 641 A.D., Professor Maria Chiara Scatapiccio, I'm sure I butchered that last name, Scatapiccio, I think that's how you say it. Yeah, no, that sounds right. Scatapiccio. <laughs> uh, she and her team have been traveling from Berkeley to Berlin to catalog, catalog fragmentary papyrus rolls. Wow, all the words are coming out today. <laughs> We just need that other one. What was the other word? Uh, Etruscan. Okay, we're going to look for that one. Maybe in one of these articles. It's and, uh, lying in there. Paul's uh, foggy social study memories bingo. <laughs> uh, and they've been combing through the papyri uh, using techniques like ultraviolet photography. Fragments are revealing much more about the daily lives of ordinary people. And they believe that this has shown ancient multiculturalism. Multiculturalism and multilingualism are key words of our reality, said Scapaticcio. Yeah, there you go. And it helps if you do this. Yes, you, you got to get yes. hey. And I am part Italian, so yeah, I got to get that go, up. Yeah. Scapaticcio. Scapaticcio. It was actually almost the same thinking about antiquity with the necessary caveat due to chronological distance. Researchers found texts of the Aeneid, the Latin epic verse penned by Virgil, glorifying the foundation of Rome, being used in local language instruction. In the peripheral areas of the empire, Latin was the language of power, she said. Rome imposed its power, and literature was one of the instruments through which to do that. Through their research, her team was even able to uncover the first text showing Arabic transliterated as Latin, as well as literary work by Seneca the Elder, uh, thought to have been completely lost. The team has assembled an ex exceptional number of texts in this new study. They will publish um, roughly 1,500 Latin texts on papyri. I hope it will be a point of departure using this corpus as a tool to investigate Roman Orientalism. I feel like that's that word shouldn't be used anymore. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't yeah. think, I don't think that word is. Uh, or, oriental refers to objects, not people. Ah. That's that's where the offense comes in. Is, mm. is you know things can be oriental or occidental if they're from the West, but it's referring to things and not or places and not people, but not people. Ah. Yeah. See, I didn't know that. Yeah, learned something new right here on Think Theory Radio. <laughs> Although someone from, like, the Far East Asian community is going to be like, you are so wrong, and here's why. Right. So I do not speak for the Far East Asian community, but that's to my understanding, that's why the word Oriental is offensive, because it's it's supposed to refer to things and not people. Yeah, that makes sense, though. Yeah. Yeah. Because Occidental and Oriental are words, you know, like, those yeah. are, it's it's supposed to describe Far East and Far West. But right. Yeah. There we ah. go. Sorry, a little sidetrack. No, there. I like yeah. it. I like it. I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if I should stay with more linguistic stuff or switch it up. No, let's do hmm. linguistics. Let's knock out another linguistic. Hmm. Stay on top. Okay. You know? All right. 
So now we have uh, instructions left by the father of linguistics have finally been decoded after 2,500 years. And uh, sometime between 6th and 4th century BC, the Indian scholar uh, Daxiputra Panini, also the inventor of a beautiful sandwich, <laughs> no, it's true, um, wrote down some rules describing the workings of Sanskrit. Over 2,000 years later, his work was read by Europeans and helped establish the science of linguistics for all human languages, which I didn't know that. Okay. I did not know about this father of linguistics. So, shouts out to Father Panini. I think it's it's Panini, though, because I have that line over the A. Oh, okay. And that'd be Panini. Or Panini. 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 Yeah. That's my guess. Yeah. It's a good It's a long A sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Painini wrote almost 4,000 verses describing rules of what are now fields of knowledge such as syntax and semantics. His work is particularly noted for the study of how words are formed and relate to others from the same language known as morphology. He described a language machine, an algorithm that has been compared to Alan Turing's early computers to construct grammatically correct Sanskrit words. Much of Painini's Technique is applicable to other human languages, but those who came after him struggled to follow some of these rules, even in the original. In the original, now University of Cambridge PhD student Rishi Rajpopat claims to have decoded the language machine in his thesis, published today or whenever that day was earlier, uh, end of last year. Okay, uh, Rajpopat says his work allows the correct application of the machine, possibly for the first time since Panini. Panini. I keep wanting to say Panini. <laughs> yeah, what flat pressed sandwich or whatever? Mm, yeah. Delicious, and it could have implications for teaching computers to understand human speech. Um, the problem subsequent scholars have found with Painini's work is that sometimes more than one of his rules could be applied at a particular stage of word building with no obvious way to determine which use. And I like this uh, metaphor here. It's like putting together a piece of IKEA furniture, only to find that two pieces both fit, and the instructions didn't tell you which will result in the outcome you seek. <laughs> like that would ever happen. Um, Rush Popat argues the fault lies not with Painini, but with those who have sought to follow his instructions. Painini provided a meta rule to determine which rules applicable where multiple options apply, and he believes that that was misinterpreted. Uh, Rosh Papat says the instruction was meant to reflect not the serial order, but the left and right side of the word with rules that apply to the right side of the word given precedence that is later in the word, not the order. When he applied this meta rule, Rosh Papat claims it almost always produced grammatically correct results. And it comes from the misinterpretation of Hainini's meta rule. Then instructed, in the event of a conflict between two rules of equal strength, the rule that comes later in the grammar serial order wins. So there you go. We figured out language. Solved it. (laughs) It is kind of interesting, though, that there was someone that long ago, or, you know, maybe there was more than one, but they had the foresight to write rules of language. You know, you would think that's, I never thought of kind of rules of language. You know, I mean, you're taught it, but not in an actual, like, physical 
like here's the you know here's the ten word here's the ten rules of language. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just kind of something you learn, you evolve as a child, and you, you develop ways to speak, unlike me, and develop very well-ly. <laughs> <laughs> Not like Mr. Panini. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see whether if that leads to more uh, translations of ancient texts. We didn't know what they meant. We shall find out. Um... Hmm, sarcophagi, underwater civilizations, ancient tools at Stonehenge. Where should I go? I'll do one more before the break. <sighs> sarcophagi. All right. And this is one of those that, like, I always feel like, you know, a lot of times scientists or archaeologists, they don't learn from the movies, you know? <laughs> No. <laughs> Don't open that sarcophagi, yeah, man, or yeah. sarcophagus. Life doesn't does not imitate art. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I guess this one is uh archaeologists have opened the lead sarcophagus that was buried deep beneath Notre Dame. Or Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yeah. Not the uh South Bend Indiana no. college, the uh no. Home of the Fighting French. Yeah. <laughs> right? I never understood that. Why would you have a French name <laughs> yeah, with uh, an Irish? It has to do, I think, with the Jesuits or something. Okay. I forget. I, I did read about that. Because I know like the Jesuits are really big in Ireland. Yeah. And then I think that's a Jesuit okay. thing. Well, it's... And I, I think know, Notre Catholic, Dame... Uh, yeah. Cheer, cheer for old yeah. Notre Dame. Wake up the echoes. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's some strange explanation. Send but... a volley, cheer on <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I don't think there's a Notre Dame in Ireland, like a renamed No, one. I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. I have gone to the to the original Notre Dame. In, in Paris. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool. But the Sacre Blanc. Is the is the real one you want to go to? That's the big white church that's up on a hill. Should be like was that like sacred or ho- holy yeah. white or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sacre and, blanc, uh, sacre coeur. Yeah. I think it's also it's sacre coeur too. Sacre coeur. Like coeur is church, maybe. Oh, okay. I forget. Yeah, yeah. That sounds. I forget too. But that one's really plausible. Cool. Sounds right. Overlooks the whole city. But anyway, um, archaeologists had to put on protective clothing and opened two unusual lead sarcophagi found. Buried beneath Notre Dame. And after the famous fire back in 2019, mm-hmm. a number of incredible finds were made beneath these scorched ruins. Which is interesting because you think these things were there probably so long and kind of gotten forgot about. And it wasn't because, you know, until this fire happened that all of these artifacts had to be removed. Which they probably would still be there and no one knew. Or I'm sure some people at the church know, but... Uh, carefully opening up the scarf guy while wearing clothing to protect him from the lead, researchers from the University of Toulouse found the remains of two wealthy men showing signs of a tough life. <laughs> I know how those go together. Wealthy and tough. Eh. <laughs> uh, one of the bodies was easily identified as Antoine de la Porte, thanks to an epitaph that remained largely intact, which read, This is the body of Mr. Antoine of the Canon Port of the Church. Death December 24th, 1710, in his 83rd year. That's a pretty long time for 1710, to live till 83. Oh, yeah. Uh, The coffin was made of lead to help preserve the body, a fate available only to the wealthy of the time. 
but unfortunately the coffin was not intact and the body had decomposed significantly, leaving just the bones, hair, and a few fragments of textiles. And his bones showed evidence of a sedentary lifestyle as well as gout. Disease that was uh, usually associated with the rich back then. I was going to say, yeah, gout was like a, a social status thing, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, you had to have money to and sit around and eat stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now anyone can get it. It's great. <laughs> it's, well, what I a mean, beautiful world we live in. I think, uh, you know, the, the standards have been... Uh, Allowed that everyone can enjoy the any anyone yeah. that still has money. Can well, I think there's also like a, a more a plethora of available fried foods and fatty substances on every corner. Yeah, <laughs> uh, De La Porte was a canon, according to the team. Explained explaining his placement underneath the central part of the transept reserved for the important during his life is influential and wealthy, commissioning several paintings that now hang in the Louvre and paying for renovations to the cathedral itself. Although the occupant of the second sarcophagus remains more of a mystery. The body appears to be that of a 25 to 40-year-old male who likely rode horses from an early age, which is an interesting... I don't know. It doesn't really say how they determine that. Um, The legs or something? I don't know. Uh, Leaves and flowers discovered on his skull and abdomen. Though he was placed in part of the cathedral that suggests importance or prominence, it is not yet known who he was or what century he lived. The bone showed signs of chronic disease, while most of his teeth had been destroyed prior to his death. The aristocrat also showed signs of a deformed skull, likely from wearing a headdress as a baby. And uh, he's currently nicknamed Le Cavalier. So they're hoping one day to identify who this mysterious horseman is who had a deformed skull from wearing a headdress as a baby so lesson to parents out there don't make your baby wear a headdress (laughs) (laughs) are we going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more awesome archaeology on Think Theory Radio Welcome back to Think Theory Radio. Today it's awesome archaeology. We have uh, still many, many discoveries to go through. And if uh, Etruscans are mentioned, I I (laughs) win a free something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yes. You win gout. (laughs) Yeah. A lifetime of gout. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to be, it's prestigious. Yeah, right. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Uh, Worship me in my gout. <laughs> there was uh, something else like that too, like back. Oh, and I'm, I'm totally gonna sidetrack. Another like a, something a rich people disease. Yeah, it was something to do. I, there was something with telephone, like when telephones first came out. Ah, I can't remember, but it's <laughs> it was around that time period, and there was some kind of disease. And they thought it was, that's what it was. was, I forget what the disease was, but they thought it was caused by having a telephone. Okay. They didn't really know, you know, about the technology and, you know, frequencies and stuff. So then people were getting sick and then like, but people would brag and like, yes, I'm sick too. Because then they would like infer that they had a telephone and that they were rich. (laughs) It's just strange. Um, So let's uh, take it to, to England stay in Europe and to one of my favorite places which I haven't been to yet I have to go there 
because I've been to places that are similar, but this is one of the most famous archaeological places in the world, Stonehenge. Yeah. Right? Um, and they, uh, there's been, and, and recently there's been a lot of discoveries with Stonehenge. They've been finding all these different artifacts underneath, and they're learning more and more about the culture that built it. And now, because of these ancient tools they've discovered, they they believe that it points to a more advanced society than previously known. Hmm. And archaeologists at the University of Leicester have just re-examined five 4,000-year-old tools like flint cups and Neolithic axes that have puzzled experts since their discovery 220 years ago in a Bronze Age burial near Stonehenge. Four were actually examined for the first time. Based on the bones, cups, and cobbles surrounding two bodies at the grave, most recently dated from 1850 to 1700 B.C., researchers have hypothesized over the past century that these grave goods belong to a costumed shaman or a goldsmith of status. Applying contemporary technologies, including microware analysis and scanning electron microscopy to the tool surfaces, researchers have revealed their own their owner was more likely a gold worker who coaxed the precious metal into sheets to gild other items. Advancing a new materialist approach, we identify a gold-working toolkit linking gold, stone, and copper objects with the chain operatoire, the team wrote in their study, adding that modern categorizations of these materials miss much of their complexity. New materialism recenters understandings of what discovered artifacts did relationally rather than through their fixed properties. Dr. Colin Shell first detected gold traces on these tools in early 2000s under the Beyond the Three Age System project meant to fortify new materialism. Dr. Christina Soraki conducted new wear analysis of the tools at their current home on display at the Wiltshire Museum in Devizes close to where the archaeologists found, uh, first found the stone and copper alloy toolkit. Soraki recruited Dr. Chris Standish, an expert in early Bronze Age gold work from the University of Southampton, to re-examine the gold residues she found on the tool surfaces upon realizing they've been used for different purposes, applied with different hand motions. Some bore the markings of hammering, while others used for smoothing. The two employed a scanning electron microscope and an energy dispersive spectrometer to date the residues. A what? What spectrometer? <laughs> you don't have one of those? No. Come on, man. Every household should have a, di- a dispersive spectrometer, <laughs> an energy dispersive spectrometer. An energy dispersive spectrometer. Say that 10 times yeah. fast. How else are you going to find you know, the gold in your home? You might have gold paint you didn't even know. <laughs> I doubt it with it's gold with hanging home. in them walls. <laughs> uh, new research has identified a further four stone objects with gold on their surfaces and characteristics where characteristic wear traces linking a wider suite of items from the burial to the gold working process. A statement from the university said now they know a grooved abrading tool once scoured bronze as well as gold. Dull axe heads were repurposed to crush pigments, flint nodule cups mixed resins, and the copper alloy all was used with compressive force against a material of medium hardness. This helps us understand the highly skilled processes involving in making gold objects in the Bronze Age, 
and shows the continuing importance of museum collections, said Dr. Oliver Harris, who leads the Beyond the 3-H system. Wiltshire Museum curator Lisa Brown added that the central enigma's ceremonial cloak decorated with pierced animal bones also hints that he was a spiritual leader and one of the few people in the early Bronze Age who understood the magic of metalworking. And then it speculates that maybe a shaman and a gold worker were never that different. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's some pretty cool pictures of it if you look it up. They believe that this was some shaman, some magic shaman. It made me speculate, like, maybe this guy wasn't even from the area. Like, what if he came from... Egypt or somewhere, somewhere in the Middle East and traveled up. And that's why he was like so much more advanced than the people there. And he was the one that taught them. It's probably easier to get away with that back in the day. I feel like nowadays people are like, you're not from around here. (laughs) Well, and you'd also, it would be so hard to find kind of uh, an area, you know, like the places you would go where you could trick people. Yeah. To be a flint man. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I guess you can. Yeah, uh, yeah. And there was a president. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> although this would be the station to talk about. That. Yeah, yeah. As, actually, I was talking with some friends earlier about how, you know, if you think about. <laughs> I'm just thinking of there's, there's CPT listeners right now. Like, oh, They're like, please. oh, oh, oh. Right. <laughs> They're on their phones. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but Finally, was, <laughs> they're talking politics on Think Theory Radio. <laughs> Yeah, the big snake oil salesman. See, yeah. he came into town. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, too, that that's how, like, a lot of the ancient kind of, you know, priests and, like, you know, the shamans or whatever. Yeah. Like, I think they had a more advanced knowledge of science yeah. than they let on. And they knew that common people didn't. Yeah. So you could manipulate that. Like, if you knew what an eclipse was, mm-hmm. right, and you knew when it was going to happen, mm-hmm. you could easily, like, go like, up on some platform. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. like, you know, say, like, if you don't do this right now, the sun will go black because mm-hmm. God is angry. Mm-hmm. And then the sun goes black and everyone's <gasps> like, oh, my God, yeah. you know. And just, you know, whatever else, yeah. like, you know, how to bring, you know, fish or how to do this. I mean, think about if somebody didn't know how to how to be a goldsmith mm-hmm. or knew anything about, you know, carpentry or anything. And you showed up out of nowhere to some village. Like gold figurines. Yeah. Like, I found this. The Lord gave it to me. Right. You know, like or even show them that you could do it. Like yeah. God showed me the, 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 you know, the power to manipulate metal. <laughs> I mean, it's like alchemists, I think, mm-hmm. too, was a lot of that it was kind of like. They knew more than they were letting on, and they just, you know, kind of covered it, wrapped it in this magical thing to kind of, you know, yeah, you know, confuse people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were mentalists. <laughs> uh, let's see, where should we go? Where should we go? Uh, oh, this is a good one because we always talk about, you know, we're all taught how. You know, everyone came over the Bering Strait, mm-hmm. came over to the, the Americas, settled here. History went on, right? They never talk about Native Americans going back. I feel like you've mentioned this before. I don't know if I've mentioned this specific thing. I definitely have talked about the concept of it. Yeah. Um, but this one, it's actually ancient DNA charts that Native Americans' journeys to Asia 
thousands of years ago. And um, which is interesting when you think about like, why is it never? I mean, now I'm sure it will be brought up more, but it's it was always kind of taught, at least on a basic level. Maybe if you studied archaeology in, in college or the university or whatever, maybe they would come up. But we was kind of t- like, well, they just came over and then that was it. Like they just stayed here. Yeah. Like no one was ever thought of, hey, maybe we should go back that, you know, where we came like or where our ancestors said they came from. Like, see what's back over there. Yeah. Well, I guess some did. Uh, either by walking land bridge or traveling by boat. I believe the hunter-gatherers ventured out or, you know, this is, well, this is beginning Eastern Asia, Eastern Asia about twenty to 30,000 years ago to the Americas. Um, but now with these genetic studies show that Native Americans returned across the Bering Strait to Eurasia long before Europeans began arriving in distant parts of the Americas. New genetic research is mapping out those ancient migrations back and forth across the Bering Strait and elsewhere across Eurasia during key periods of human prehistory. Science have recently recovered ancient DNA from the well-preserved bones and teeth of 10 Eastern Eurasian individuals from 7,500 to 500 years old and published their findings in Current Biology. The new evidence helps shows that from the coasts of America and Japan to the Siberian interior, some of our deep ancestors' populations may have been more mobile and intermixed than anyone could have imagined. Cosimo Poth, Poth, uh, an ar- archaeogenetics expert, never heard of that, um, <laughs> at the University of Tumingen in Germany, and colleagues described the genomes of 10 different individuals who lived in three key regions Siberia's Altai Mountains, the Kamchatka Peninsula, and other ports of the Russian Far East. Environmental conditions, cold climates, and high altitudes allowed for optimal preservation of DNA that was hundreds to thousands of years old. In these, in these environments, you can find individuals with 70 to 80% of human DNA in their bones, comparable to what you'd get if you extracted saliva from you or me, says Poths. Uh, you can actually generate a genome of the same quality as a modern genome. It's amazing stuff, he says. Analysis of the DNA from those 10 individuals provided several key revelations about ancient migrations. First, the broad movements of ancient humans and cultures across Eurasia are evidenced by the discovery of an entirely new population that lived in Siberia's Altai Mountains. That culture's descendants, the authors show, were part of lineages that later helped populate both Europe and the Americas. Secondly, individuals of Japan's Jomon culture, isolated in the archipelago for thousands of years, migrated back to the Asian mainland from which their ancestors came. And finally, Native Americans migrated back to Asia several times over a span of thousands of years. The remains of some of the study's oldest individuals dated to some 7,500 years ago are part of the previously unknown population of hunter-gatherers who lived in the Altai Mountains. Today, this crossroads is a kind of Eurasian four corners where Russia, Mongolia, China, and Kazakhstan border one another. Uh, back in the early Holocene period, at least 10,000 years ago, the Altai population lived in a region that was slowly warming, and I believe that it was easier for them to live there. So that's pretty interesting that they were like these Native American ancestors living in Russia 7,000 yeah. years ago. Yeah. You know? And, like, who, and then we think about, you know, the people that came over, we always credit it as Eurasians, but a lot of these could have been Native American descendants coming back. And repopulating. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. 
All right. Uh, uh, human history. You yes. Gotta love it. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, thanks for everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week and every Saturday, 6 to 7 p.m. right here on WCPT H20 Think Theory Radio. Thank you.